to Women's Health Weekly from Maiden Lane Medical. We bring you experts from all around the country to help you with your health, life, and happiness. Now for your host, Dr. Kenneth Levy. Welcome back to our Friday, every Friday at noon edition of Women's Health Weekly. Every week we bring you information from experts that applies to women health, women's health that you can use, that's practical. We give you an opportunity to ask questions live and get them answered by experts from around the world. And this week from New York City only, this week we have with us, and we're so excited, Dr. Jamie Glick, who is a clinical assistant professor of dermatology at New York Presbyterian, Wild Cornell. We are absolutely honored to have her here. And my longtime colleague, Dr. Nicole Ostrov, who is a gynecologist who has been working for Maiden Lane Medical with us for about the past nine years. We have an all-star team today. And once this telecast is over, it'll be available on replay on our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Maiden Lane Medical. So I just want to, I want to get started here. I want to jump right into it. Let's talk about dermatologists and what dermatologists do. So my understanding there are two main areas in dermatology, um, cosmetic dermatology, uh, which, in, which you can tell us about in a moment, and then there's medical dermatology. So what do, what do cosmetic dermatologists do mainly? So I, I would correct you and say there's like three main areas of dermatology, I cosmetic corrected. and surgical. Um, we do do most skin cancer treatments of anyone. Um, so cosmetic dermatologists focus on making us more beautiful. Um, so we focus on Botox, filler, laser, skin quality, skin texture. I mean, it's, it's a really vast field. I specialize in cosmetic and medical dermatology. I feel there's a lot of overlap. Like, let's say you have an acne patient. A lot of acne patients complain about acne, but even when I clear up their acne, they start to complain about this dark spots or the leftovers and the scars. So sometimes that's even more concerning than the acne itself. So there's a lot of overlap between the medical and the cosmetic aspects of dermatology. So you do both. I do both. I okay. do both. I do. Yes. It's my favorite part. I can do at all you know the patient comes in they want us to clear their skin we can clear their skin from acne then we can clear their skin from the you know the marks and the scars and it's really rewarding to be able to do the whole spectrum so let's talk about one of the most common things i believe we see together um, which is acne let's talk about acne. what is acne we're still actually, as common as acne is, we're still trying to understand what causes acne. Um, but I usually tell my patients it's a combination of four factors, basically four plus, I say. So clogged pores or something called hyperkeratinization, inflammation, um, oil glands or overgrowth of the sebaceous glands, and bacteria. And all of those mixed together basically to form an acne lesion. So, uh, so we actually use the word acne to describe even one lesion. So acne is just even one pimple. I need an explanation from you of something that's been on my mind for a while. 
Um, so I had a lot of acne as a kid, and I know a lot of women also have acne as a kid in their teen years. Um, when they hit puberty, uh, acne tends to increase so far as I understand. Isn't that supposed to stop at some point? I would actually say the most common person in my office for acne is a 20 to 30 something year old young female. They are the most common. I don't know. You know, when I was in training, I felt like everyone was a little bit younger, but I don't know. I think it was like this explosion of acne in, in young people. Um, I don't know if this will offend you guys um, as gynecologists, but I think that there is a big association between hormonal acne and IUDs. I always joke to my patients that sometimes, you know, the Mirena and Skyla IUDs keep me in business. <laughs> hold, it, hold it that's that's not only hold it that's not only not offensive that we're seeing the same thing but here's the difference is that there's a there's in medicine uh for the youtube viewers there's something called an observation bias um so sometimes you see something and you think it's more common uh because you're only seeing a subset of that population so dr click you're totally right we definitely see more acne in women who have the progesterone containing hormone IUDs than women who have non-hormone containing IUDs or are on nothing. And here's the reason why. It's because the progesterone levonorgestrel, which is a hormone inside that IUD, the, the hormone has some what are called androgenic side effects. And some women tolerate those androgenic side effects very well. And androgenic side effects are things that give you a testosterone-like side effect. So things that would make your skin oily, your hair oily, make you potentially gain weight, um, and give you some acne are typical androgenic side effects that we see. The reason you think it's so common is because those are the only patients you're seeing with hormone-related, or probably other than maybe polycystic ovary syndrome patients, the only patients you're really seeing with hormone-related acne is the, are the ones with the IUDs. The, but the real data is that we only see it about five percent uh, in, in about five percent of women who who have hormone containing IUDs. You're seeing a hundred percent of those five percent of women. I was just going to add in too that sometimes there's also the bias of there's a lot of women that um, stop their oral contraceptive that actually can be their acne. I'm sure Dr. Good would agree with because a lot of those progesterones can be more anti-testosterone and they've switched from the pill to the IUD. So a lot of them have that bias too um, because they've stopped something that was actually helpful for them and started this IUD that does have this, you know, a little bit more androgenic activity. Got it. I completely agree with you actually. I think patients tend to come in more because they never had acne and now suddenly they do and they want to go to the dermatologist even more so than necessarily someone who's been struggling with it for most of their life. That's an interesting sort of scenario. And I'm really glad you brought that up because last week, Dr. Ostrov and I had this whole conversation about um, contraception. And we, we realized that it was a much bigger topic. The acne, acne in association with or without certain types of contraception was a really interesting topic to talk about. And I think from our standpoint, from a general, you know, both cosmetic standpoint and social standpoint and feeling about yourself standpoint, patients should really know that um, there's a five or so percent chance that the hormone that contain, that's contained in their hormone containing IUD is going to lead to adverse skin effects. I think that's a really important counseling point.
I absolutely agree. I also think that a lot of times patients get on the IUD so they don't have to take a pill, right? That's one of the common areas. And then they come into my office and then sometimes I have to start them on spironolactone or an antibiotic or another pill. And it's kind of like replacing one pill for another pill. So I definitely think educating them that, you know, if that's the primary reason you may want to consider something else, you know, just talking about all their options. I, I sometimes do prescribe birth control by my, for, for my own patients, but oftentimes I'll send them first to a gynecologist, especially if they've never been evaluated before, because you guys are certainly the experts on, on all the different options out there. Let's just set the scenario that I'm a 24 year old woman and I have perfect skin or what I, I love my skin. The skin's great, it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, what can I do um, to prevent potential acne outbreaks? And how, and how, how would I, am I at risk for suddenly getting acne? What's the, what are the answers to some of that? How do, I, how do I prevent it? It's hard to imagine me as a 24 year old girl, but I'm trying. <laughs> great. So, uh, so I think that there's like a couple of questions there. So. One is how to prevent acne, and two is how to just keep your skin beautiful and young for a long period of time. And that's where the medical cosmetic dermatology overlap happens basically every day for every patient in my office. So in terms of acne, um, I would say, you know, if you're not prone to acne, the fastest way to get you prone to acne is to use comedogenic products. So that means products that are going to clog your pores. So a lot of times I see my younger patients wanting to use a lot of anti-aging products, even though they're only, you know, 24. And I understand and really respect the, you know, preventative measures, but sometimes they're then using products that are designed for older patients, you know, potentially their mother's moisturizer or serum that doesn't really factor in that younger people may be prone to acne. And then they end up putting on these very thick, heavy products, and then suddenly developing clogged pores and acne. So like we talked about before, there are four plus things that cause acne and hyperkeratinization or clogged pores is one of the primary ones. So I think that that's one, making sure that you use products that are appropriate to your skin. And that's really hard to know because there's so much information out there. I mean, the skincare market, especially now is just booming. Um, I think that talking to your dermatologist and trying things out are the best ways to really know. Um, in terms of keeping your skin young, the number one thing is sunscreen. Even if you're indoors, um, I t I'm wearing my sunscreen right now. I hope you um, are as well. So especially if you're near a window, UVA light actually is light that can come in through even a closed window and that actually can damage collagen and cause aging. So broad spectrum sunscreens that prevent against UVA and UVB light um, are really important, even when you're sitting in your home, like most of us are doing these days. Dr. Ostroff, did you know that? I didn't. I had no idea. I mean, I, I always do wear sunscreen, uh, you know, as, as I get a little bit older, um, I'm a little bit more aware of my skin and take better care of it than I did in my 20s. Um, but I had no idea. But I think, you know, I think a lot of women now do are a little bit more cognizant about using the moisturizers with sunscreen, using the foundations with sunscreens. But I had no idea, even when you're driving, I guess, too, then, right? Totally, especially on your hands, because a lot of times people put sunscreen on their face and they forget about their hands. And if you have that wheel, then your hands can age you a lot. 
oftentimes we can say we can tell the age of a woman by her neck chest and hands not even her face because people tend to apply more moisturizers and sunscreens to the face going back to 24 year old ken um i always think a retinoid using a retinoid as long as you're not actively trying to become pregnant or currently pregnant is a great way to kill two birds one is um preventing acne because retinoids can decrease the size of the sebaceous gland or oil glands and they can also unclog pores and they're also um one of the only topical medicines to promote collagen growth so that is an excellent way to do multiple things and it's they're even at over-the-counter retinoids and retinols now are there some really great products that you think about when you think about a great over-the-counter product with retinoids in them so i think that there are a million of them <laughs> Probably, um, right. that, um you know differin or adapalene is the first ever prescription strength retinoid that's available over the counter so a lot of times because insurance can often give us a difficult time in retinoids. A lot of times, I'll, if I can't get a tretinoin or a Tazerac, which are higher strength retinoids applied for my patients or covered by their insurance, I'll just recommend they start over-the-counter Differin or Dapling because they can get that. It's a little confusing though because Differin now has like a whole brand of products. They have sunscreens and moisturizers. And so a lot of times when I say Differin, I'll get an email from my patient and I'll have like nine different photos of different products, but Adapalene gel is the generic name of, of what you'd be looking for in that case. Um, back to acne very quickly. Um, just from a standpoint of prevention, are there any foods or nutritional aspects uh, to one's lifestyle that may either worsen acne, bring on acne, or even help prevent acne? So yes, there are some studies I firstly always like to say that I think a lot of this is individual. So sometimes I have patients who tell me every single time I eat a slice of pizza, I get a pimple or every single time I go on a plane, I get a pimple. So I do think that we all have individual things that can stress out our skin, increase inflammation to our skin and thus, you know, increase bacteria growth and make acne. Um, but just generally speaking in the studies, typically skim milk, has been associated with higher levels of acne and so have high glycemic foods. So foods that can spike your blood sugar and insulin-like growth factor that can then exacerbate the growth of your sebaceous glands can all cause acne. So, you know, the things that make you healthy are the things that make your skin healthy too, you know? That makes, that makes so much sense. I mean, all of those things that you're talking about, um, cow's milk for some people, uh, foods that are high in the glycemic index, right? Things that spike your blood sugar are going to be things that are generally unhealthy for you and make you gain weight and have other adverse effects on your body. And right, so I guess the keep your body healthy, keep your skin healthy. Is that the message? Exactly. We have a great question from one of our YouTube viewers going back to the conversation about sunscreen. And I think it's actually a really insightful question. Does don't we don't we need sunlight for vitamin d production and knowing that the sunscreen block the level of the ben the sun the the natural sunlight benefit for vitamin d production so you know this is 
a question that dermatologists are often asked. Um, so you do get a certain percentage of vitamin D from the sun. You only need about 10 to 20 minutes outside. The UVB light that gets onto your skin can make vitamin D. It's kind of weighing the balance, I think. Um, especially now, there's a lot of talk about vitamin D and the coronavirus and your immune system. So I think it depends on what time of day you choose to go outside, what your prone to sunburn is. And also there are a lot of supplements now that you can take for vitamin D. So, you know, if you're out for 10, 20 minutes to get your vitamin D, that I get that you only need that amount of time. But if you're out for three, four hours, you know, you got well more vitamin D than you needed that day, specifically from the sun, but you got a lot more sun damage in those extra, you know, three and a half hours. That's a great, that's great. I want to um, just kind of move on to the, to the next set of topics. If that's, have we, have we gotten, have we talked about acne enough? Does anyone have any additional items to talk about with regard to acne? Doctor, do you have any well, questions for Dr. Ostroff, for Dr. Glick, Dr. Ostroff? The, the only other thing I was going to say is maybe to mention, because I even get this question a lot, is um, the SPF, the SPF number on those sunscreen bottles. And is the higher you go better? And at what would you cap that number at? We get, I even get that question a lot. So it's really interesting you would say that. And my answer would have been different a week ago than it is today. Um, so typically, I would tell my patients, SPF 30 or the sun protection factor number is really what you should focus on um, because or you get about 98% of sun protection rays being prevented at SPF 30. That goes down to about 93 at SPF 15. And, you know, I always tell my patients, like, as doctors, we like to get an A, not an A minus. So we want to be at the 98 and not at the 93. However, a recent study in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology that just came out actually showed that SPF um, of 100 may actually be better than SPF 50, um, and that it might give you more prolonged sun protection. That was a, a brand new controversial study because typically we don't say that. I, I literally just read that when I was catching up on my journal articles like last week, and I was like, hmm, I might have to change what I say. You're the first person to ask me since I've read that new article. Um, so I think. In terms of sunscreen, I'm still going with an SPF of 30, but I think even more than that is when you put it on and how often you put it on. So, you know, a lot of times patients are like, Dr. Glick, I got sunburned, but I put my sunscreen on. I'm like, okay, did you put it on 20 minutes before you go out? And did you reapply every two hours? And, you know, it's hard to do that. You know, when you're reapplying sunscreen every hour and a half to two hours, it's like, feels like the whole day you're just applying sunscreen but you really want to apply at least every two to four hours, especially, you know, after you come out of the, the water. All right, I have one more, I'm gonna, I have one more acne topic for you. Um, and I know you wanted to talk about this and it's very timely and it's important because all of us are now wearing masks um, mm -hmm. and those masks can be irritating and they produce moisture in the, in, uh, beneath the mask. What, what are your recommendations? Can, can, can that lead to more acne? Can, what are there other skin problems the masks can lead to? And if so, how do we prevent that? So yes, the skin masks can lead to a number of problems. Um, although I still think we should wear them. Um, we can do it, you know, responsibly and in a great way to protect our skin. So 
Um, because you're wearing a mask, you're trapping in moisture. And so there are a lot of skin conditions that worsen with a lot of moisture or sweating. So something called seborrheic dermatitis, which is a scaly rash that happens oftentimes over here and over here, a lot of times right under the mask, we'll see that act up. Um, and definitely acne. So a lot of times I used to see acne in my young football players, like right under their um, helmets, they used to get acne there because of the compression of the follicle and also the sweat and the, and the dirt and the moisture there can all cause acne. And now we're seeing that similar concept with the mask. So I think a couple of quick tricks, um, and obviously if your acne gets so bad and it's really disconcerting to you, I would see, you know, a dermatologist and there's a lot of telemedicine and teledermatology you could do now. Um, but in terms of what you can do at home, Number one is make sure that if you're using a reusable cloth mask, you're washing it as frequently as you can. Um, I also think a choice of a wash might be good. So using a face wash with a salicylic acid. So salicylic acids are keratolytic, so they basically can unclog your pores. So if you're using a mask every day that's clogging your pores, at least when you're washing your face, you can unclog your pores. So what I would do is use a sal acid wash like in the morning or at night. And then the other time of day, I would probably use a foaming cleanser. I don't always recommend foaming cleansers because they can often strip the skin barrier, but because you have a lot of extra moisture and stuff going on, you want to be extra cleansed. So I think a foaming cleanser is a good idea. And there's a lot of over-the-counter sal acid. I have no stock in Neutrogena, but they make a ton of different sal acids, but I don't want any of the ones with the beads. Um, those can actually inflame skin and especially if your skin's already inflamed. So just a gentle sal acid wash and a gentle foaming cleanser too. So let's go ahead and move to uh, our next set of uh, topics, which is really a little bit about some other skin problems. I think maybe we could talk about these together. The problem of eczema, which I understand to be very common, um, and dryness, which can come along with eczema as far as I understand. But you, but you I guess if there's correcting to be done, you, will, you should and, and will correct me. Um, so how common is, what is eczema um, and how common is it? I would say eczema is extremely common, especially these days. Um, eczema is more of like a all encompassing term and it really just means inflammation of the skin. There's lots of different causes of eczema. So atopic dermatitis is probably what most people think of when they think of eczema. It's like the little babies who have eczema. Um, then there's allergic contact dermatitis, which is just another um, cause of inflammation of the skin. I would say that these days, allergic contact dermatitis is extremely common. It's probably next to maskne, the most common thing I'm seeing on my telemedicine maskne, visit. that was great. <laughs> and um, pretty much related to all of the hand washing and all of the cleaning fluids that people are using now, you know, I think that people are trying really hard not to touch their face, but a lot of times because of the mask, people are touching their faces a lot. And so I'm seeing a lot of facial rashes or eczema on the face because whatever cleaning fluid or soap or fragrance you may have used on your hands, now you're touching your face. And a lot of times you're getting those rashes on your, your face. Um, are there things that can be done to prevent symptoms associated with dry skin, for example? For sure. So um, dry skin and eczema are kind of overlapping, kind of different, but I think that um, 
oftentimes we can treat dry skin with just skin good skin practices eczema we can often treat with good skin practices but sometimes we have to take it to the next level and give like a prescription medicine for that um, in terms of ways to prevent both dry skin and eczema i think that good skin care so i'm not going to tell you not to wash your hands because we're all washing our hands and we should wash be respirator <laughs> prevent the virus but um i always tell my patients even before we were all hand washing as frequently as are that you want to moisturize as often as you can after a hand washing um because when you wash your hands and you use soap you're trying to kill whatever's on your hands but then you're also stripping your epidermis or stratum corneum which is the top layer of your epidermis which is your skin barrier and so you're taking off a lot of what you would want there as well and so you want to kind of replace that with a moisturizer and a moisturizer specifically with something called ceramides in it is particularly good at moisturizing the skin it helps replace the lipids that sometimes we kind of take off when we're using the soap so there's a lot of products out there that have ceramides in them right, i think not that's not a word i'm familiar with but now i am thank you dr glick CeraVe is one of the classic um, moisturizers out there that have ceramides in them. It was probably one of the first ones. And now there's a lot of different ones. Another brand called Amlactin. They recently came out with their rapid repair formula, which also has ceramides in it. I think Purell also has a ceramides um, formula as well. I also think not using very hot water. So you don't want to use very hot water because that can also when that hot water goes off your skin and evaporates, it takes extra water with it and makes you even drier as well. You know what else is really common that we see all the time that uh, Dr. Glick, I bet you see all the time, and I know Dr. Ostrov and I see this all the time because it's so incredibly common is our thyroid problems. Problems with the thyroid and low levels of thyroid hormone. The question is, can thyroid issues cause eczema? Or are they associated? Because thyroid's an, or, an, auto, an autoimmune problem. Can that cause eczema or be associated with it? Not exactly eczema, I would say, but I would say dry skin for sure. Um, hypothyroidism has um, one of the primary symptoms or signs of hypothyroidism, which is an underactive thyroid, would be dry skin. Sometimes it's one of the first signs that we see. Interesting. So definitely, um, I wouldn't say, you know, just because you have dry skin, you have to worry that you have hypothyroidism because it's definitely not the most common cause, but um, it's definitely seen in patients who have that. So I do want to talk about some of the cosmetic dermatology um, issues and something we see very commonly in the office and get requests for all the time um, is uh, information about laser hair removal. Uh, I won't tell you my horror story that I had with a patient, um, but let's suffice to say that if I was going to recommend a hair removal technique, it would be laser hair removal over waxing. So talk to us about laser hair removal. How does that even work? Who, who should get it? Who shouldn't get it? So I think that, you know, it, it's a cost. So that's, you know, it's, it is an investment laser hair removal, but other than that, I think, Everyone with dark hair should consider it. Um, the way that laser hair removal works is basically um, the laser targets dark hair because the laser sees the melanin in your hair and it basically targets it and blows it away. Um, 
So we have lots of different lasers available now because if you have darker skin, you know, this laser will see your hair, but it will also see your skin. So we use special types of lasers depending on your skin color to make sure to try and target the hair and not the skin and discolor the skin. Um, I think it's really beneficial for, you know, the armpits and the groin area, especially for people who are prone to ingrown hairs and, you know, cysts. And there's also a condition, you know, hydroadenitis superativa, which I see a lot. I imagine you as gynecologists would also see that a lot too. And, oh, we you know, sure one do. of the patients is, is laser hair removal as well. Okay, so laser hair removal. What if somebody also has dark skin? Does it then target their, the, mel the am, I, am I using the right word, melanin? Yes. There? Does it also, it does. so it targets the melanin in the hair follicle, but does it also target the melanin in the skin? So if you have dark skin, what happens when you do laser hair removal? Laser hair removal is slightly more difficult. We do have lasers that are more longer wavelengths, which can penetrate the skin deeper and protect the surface of the skin. Um, an example would be an ND YAG laser. So a lot of times that one we'll use on darker skin patients for laser hair removal. We do have to be just more careful. So a lot of times we'll have to start lower, you know, in medicine, they say go low and slow. So a lot of times we'll do that. So if you are a patient who has darker skin, you may, you know, require a few more sessions just because you might, you know, we might need to go slower with that. We can't do laser hair removal on at, at this point on patients who have blonde hair or red hair because there's not enough, um, you know, dark melanin in the skin to target the laser. There are a lot of companies working on different methods of, you know, sending in gold particles and nanoparticles and other particles down to the follicle so the laser can see it and then blast those hairs. But as far as I know, we're not there yet. Interesting. Uh, since one of our YouTube viewers asked a, a great question, um, ap totally apropos to the current conversation. Um, uh, Sin Damon asked, uh, at, I'll, I'll sort of read it verbatim here. At home IPL devices, and I think IPL stands for intermittent pulse laser. Is that true? Actually, it stands for intense pulse light. Oh, so there you go. Intense pulse light. Thank you. So you've done a great oh. job of correcting me today. I appreciate it. So she's, she's, she asked the question that at home, these at home devices are more common, are becoming more common, and wants to know and knows that it's advised not to use them on moles or freckles, but also noted that there aren't really great specific instructions about um, how to work around moles and freckles or even how to use, um, maybe even how to use the devices. So can it be used right next to a mole? What would be the consequences? And do you have any advice about that with regard to IPL, home IPL devices? Intense pulse light, right. So a laser, the, the difference between the two is that a laser is one wavelength of light and intense pulse light would be multiple wavelengths in one. Um, intense pulse light can be used based on the wavelength that you set it at to treat red spots, to treat brown spots, and also to do laser hair removal. Um, so, you know, the fear is, is that if we laser a mole, which typically moles have melanin in them, right, which is the target of these lights and lasers, that you could potentially discolor it, you know, alter its features, and in a worst case scenario, um, you know, morph it into becoming a skin cancer. I think that, that a lot of that is theoretical. I think that, you know, we try our best in the office, you know, and, and at home I would try your best to avoid the mole, but 
I think that's the primary reason why they want you to stay clear because those those often have a lot of melanin too that you might end up burning yourself because the more melanin in the area, the more the laser sees and the more intense the laser reaction. So if you have an area where you have a very large mole, that laser can tend to see that and, and burn it. So I would just say being as careful as you as you can be. Um, so while we're on this conversation about experts um, and who can do what, I, I noticed there's a lot of people out there giving Botox. Uh, Botox parties for, with your local RN, um, Botox this, Botox that. Um, I, I know a lot about Botox because we do Botox treatments for very severe pelvic floor muscle spasm. Um, and we've been doing it for more than a decade. We've had a tremendous amount of success with it. We've, we've had, we have literally like a 0.002% rate of, of adverse outcomes. It's so incredibly rare for something bad to happen in our office because we're, you know, we're, we have experience with it. But what happens when somebody goes to get Botox um, with somebody who's not a professional and they put it in the wrong place or they put too much of it in? What, what could happen there? And how, would, how do you prevent that? So I think that as a dermatologist, this is a particularly sensitive topic. Um, what people don't realize as board certified dermatologists and also as board certified plastic surgeons that we actually learn this stuff in residency. And so a lot of times I'll tell, you know, a friend of mine who goes to a nurse or, you know, someone else who's injecting and they seem to be often very surprised that we actually are trained throughout our residency in these procedures. And also, you know, they're actually on our board exam. So we have to be certified in many ways on these procedures. So um, I think that's the value in seeing um, a board certified dermatologist or a board certified plastic surgeon, because we've had multiple years, you know, and not just weekend courses or, you know, one other doctor kind of showing us what to do you know, on a weekend. We have like rigorous, you know, structured training and then tested on it. Um, I think of all cosmetic procedures that I do, um, I think Botox is one of the safest. I actually think laser hair removal and especially IPL, that intense pulse light, is actually among the most dangerous of procedures because of the risk of burn and scarring. Um, I think that um, the, you know, attention to detail and the way that you understand facial anatomy and facial structure. And I think that board certified dermatologists and board certified surgeons, you know, spend their career studying facial anatomy and facial structure. And so no one's going to know it better than them, you know? Um, so, you know, the way that we tweak the muscle and we put a little bit of Botox here, a little bit there, I think is really, um, can alter your face, you know? I mean, this is your face we're talking about. So to me, it's not just Botox, you know, because if your eyebrow position is now out of position for the next three months, you know, that's not that's not how you want to look at yourself in the mirror, you know, for the next three months. So I think that, you know, it's important to go whoever, you know, nurse, NP, PA or MD, whoever you go to for any of these things, it's important to trust them and know that they know their anatomy and that they, um, come from a reputable place. Thank you. So I, so we're getting close to the end here. Um, I have one last question that kind of wraps up a lot of the conversation we've been having. Uh, comes from Deborah, one of our YouTube viewers. 
she asked, "What is a what? This is a, this is a great like sort of general question, and I think you touched on a lot of this. Um, but if you could give like a one and a half minute wrap up of the information, what is a good moisturizer, diet, and vitamins for aging dry skin? Well, I guess if for women who are getting to menopause, women who are maybe in their forties and experiencing some of the symptoms associated with perimenopause." Or the, perimenopause or that time around when you start to experience hormonal changes or decrease ovarian function and then your body starts to change a little bit so the question from deborah is what is a good moisturizer diet and vitamins potentially what's your like top line recommendation on that so i think a healthy diet like we were talking about before is probably essential to you know good skin um, but I think for dry skin, the most important thing is the way that you take care of your skin. So if you have dry skin, you want to take five to 10 minute showers with lukewarm, coolish water. Um, you don't want to use any scrubs or rubs, um, anything that can inflame your skin that will only worsen your skin barrier. Um, but, um, my two favorite moisturizers that I would use that I do use myself would be CeraVe, um, comes in a nice little white jar, CeraVe cream, or um, Amlactin Rapid Repair. Both of them have ceramides in them. Amlactin also has something called lactic acid in it. Um, is a alpha hydroxy acid that helps to hydrate the skin as well. Um, you know, in terms of supplements, I think that there's a lot of the things out there um, I don't know of anything specific that can help specifically with dry skin. You know, there's a lot of controversy on like fish oils and whether or not they're good for your heart, they're not good for your heart. I'm um, taking that. I myself take vitamin C and vitamin D every day, especially during this time. I think that making sure your vitamin D level is in the normal range is helpful to your immune health and also to your skin health. So you can find Dr. Glick uh, online, Dr. J A I M I E Glick, and uh, when we when we reproduce and rehash the video into a bunch of clips, her name will be on there, and you'll be able to see it there. Um, if you missed some of the earlier conversation, uh, please go back. Our video will be posted on our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com/slash Maiden Lane Medical. Once again, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for another wonderful Friday conversation and really fantastic questions. Most especially, thank you to Dr. Jamie Glick for joining us. And I hope we can bring you back again to do this another time because there's so much to talk about. And as you said, there's new information coming out all the time. And we're really excited to hear that information about the sunscreen that you're obviously really up on the literature. So I think it would be fantastic to have you back. Dr. Ostroff, thank you so much again for joining us this week. Uh, I hope everybody has an absolutely wonderful rest of the day Friday, a pleasant, safe, and healthy weekend. Once again, thank you very much. Mm -hmm.